a question to get us started and to turn our attention out towards God's word. Does anybody here have a signature scent? You can just name anybody here have a signature scent? Only my wife. David has a signature scent. I'm not going to ask what that is. I don't know. I think, you know, a lot of people, they like to claim a signature scent. My grandmother, uh, she uh, was her, well, I'll tell the story. Sadly, uh, Swedish immigrants uh, to Ebensburg, Pennsylvania, then to Revlock, Pennsylvania, coal mining town, her uh, mother tragically died in childbirth, and so she remained unnamed for a few days, and everybody called her babe. She was the new baby in the town at the local hospital, and probably wasn't much of a hospital back in that day, so she was called the babe. Her signature scent was a perfume called Babe. Everybody remember that one? I don't think they make it anymore, but it used to be on the market, and that was her signature scent. I dated a girl my freshman year of college, Kathy, and she wore patchouli. Anybody here know patchouli? I love the scent of patchouli. It, it, you either love it or you hate it. I'm getting a lot of booze and thumbs down. All right, well, no hippy-dippy hipsters here. You're all more refined than that. I love the smell of patchouli. So I was like, Robin, you can't ever wear patchouli because that's just gonna take me back to college and we don't wanna do that. I need to move forward in life. No, we have a lot of these scents and they tell us, of course, because they've studied these neurological pathways uh, that the limbic system, I believe it's called, is very intertwined. That is our memories and our sense of smell, but more specifically, it's our sense of uh, feelings of emotion. And so that's why whenever we smell a scent, it's not so much like this vivid reel of a memory being replayed on the screen of our mind, It's an emotion, it's a feeling, it's a warmth or a sadness or a nostalgia that gets evoked by these senses of smell that we experience in life. Have you ever noticed also how weird perfume ads are? They are, they're really weird. But think about it, how do you advertise a smell? So they make you know women like immersing in pools of gold paint and coming out the other side and people on beaches rolling around there. They're trying to create some visual connection with a sense of smell, but it's near impossible, right? Because all of these things are very distinct and separate, but they're trying to evoke some thought, some idea, some feeling in these advertisements well. Let me make the jump with this. If the point of all those perfume advertisements is to get us to pay attention and then to buy in to something or to remember something, let's put it this way. There's one perfume ad, there's one scent ad that rises above all of the others. We'll put it this way. It's kind of like a perfume ad that has actually been making an impact, evoking thoughts, feeling memories, ideas, even devotion for more than 2,000 years now. Of course, we're talking about the story we're about to read now, and this is Jesus's anointing. This is a story that is told in all four of the Gospels. We're going to break that down a little bit in just a moment, but we have been going through the texts uh, very often found in the Gospel according to John throughout our Lenten season. Lent is our journey of 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday, when we celebrate the death and burial of Jesus Christ, to Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a theme that's been running through all of these uh, texts that I hope, let me just plant this thought in your mind. 
Think about the theme of what we've been talking about of sense. Remember in the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, how it was Martha who said, but now by this time he stinketh. If you're here on that Sunday, that old King James version and the scent that they were afraid would come out from the grave. Uh, think about the story of Moses coming into the presence of God and God saying, take off your sandals for where you are standing, where your feet are now grounded is holy ground, and I talked about my great aversion to stinky feet. Um, a lot of these themes actually are about to get pulled together for us in this story of Jesus's anointing. Let me read it here for us. John chapter 12, we're gonna start here in verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those who were reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth about a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. This event is told in each of the gospel stories. Whenever we see a story repeated, it's kind of a marker for us to say this could be very significant in understanding the mission, the purpose, the calling of who Jesus Christ was and is for us. But there is, like many of the Bible stories, of course, some controversy around this event because it would appear that there are actually two separate events. So let's just straighten that out and then move into our text from the Gospel of John. Yes, it would appear from the Gospel of Luke that there was an earlier anointing, that there, again, a dinner was being given in Jesus's honor, but this was at the house of a Pharisee, and that an unnamed woman, we're not sure who, but we'll say she was of some ill repute, came in, and she began to anoint Jesus, cry and weep, to wipe his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee hosting the dinner was quite miffed, a bit put out by this because she knew the reputation of the woman. And Jesus gives a beautiful lesson saying, those who have been forgiven much are much more grateful than those who don't feel they have any need for forgiveness. And he saw this act of worship, of devotion, of love, of weeping, of anointing his feet as a beautiful act of worship. The other gospels tell the story that happens this coming week. This coming Sunday, next Sunday, is going to be Palm Sunday. That is gonna be our launch into Holy Week, the last week of Jesus's life. I again encourage all of you to come to be a part of our Palm Sunday celebration, to join us in worship throughout the week, to celebrate with us on Good Friday, and actually I should say mourn with us on Good Friday as we pay witness to the crucifixion of Jesus, and then eagerly anticipate coming back to celebrate with us Easter morning in the celebration of resurrection. This anointing happens in the midst of 
Holy Week. But John has done something very interesting for us. Jesus entered Bethany and it was there in Bethany where Jesus was anointed. John is actually doing a bit of foreshadowing. He's giving us a little bit of a projection into the future. Why would John do that? Why would John break the chronological order of what happens in the events of Holy Week? Why are you messing up the timeline, John? This is confusing. Oh, can I trust the Bible? Oh, my whole faith is in disarray. Sorry, I joke around sometimes about that because people do seem to get flustered whenever something doesn't make sense on the surface of scriptures. All John is doing here, in a sense, is saying this. I'm going to tell you the story of what happened when Jesus was in Bethany because I want you to read everything, understand everything that's about to unfold in this last week of Jesus' life in light of what happened when he arrived. He wants this to color. He wants this to influence. He wants us to understand everything that is about to unfold by what unfolds here at this dinner. And so... We have this joy, we have this privilege. John is, in a sense, done for us the theological heavy lifting to say, for you to understand what's about to happen in Jesus' life, understand that this event, what is about to unfold at this dinner, is going to point towards all that is about to come. So what happens in the actual story? In the story, as it unfolds, we see that Jesus has gone into the house of Matthew and Mark, give us the insight, a man named Simon the leper, whom Jesus healed. Jesus goes to his house, and there a dinner is given in his honor. And there, of course, John immediately wants to connect us from chapter 11, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. The brother of Martha and Mary raised from the dead. He is sitting there in the midst of this celebration. Martha is here again, we find serving. Her reputation as a server is well-founded. Once again, this is who she is. It's how God wired her. We should celebrate that. She is serving. But Mary, the worshiper, the one who sits at Jesus's feet, perhaps has the insight above all others, maybe that others weren't recognizing about what was about to unfold. And what is about to unfold, again, would be this normal and expected event, yet it's going to happen and transpire in a very unexpected and perhaps even controversial way, and that is his anointing. So let's understand the role and the place of anointing in the culture and in the life of faith for this community. Anointing was actually a very common practice in all of the ancient world. If you have a Bible, you know, kind of search tool, uh, Bible gateway or something online, you can type in anointing and you're going to find dozens and dozens and dozens of references to anointing happening in our own scriptures. It would have been very common and understood that when a guest of honor comes to somebody's house, that they should and would be, in fact, anointed. And it just makes sense. They don't have showers and bathtubs the way that we do. They don't have all these fancy little scents that they can spray on themselves like we do. They don't have cars with air conditioning to get to where they're going to go like we do. They have to walk in the sun on dirty, dusty roads. They have to travel great distances. And let's be honest, you can work up a bit of a... Funk, thank you. Yes, yeah, somebody else said it. I appreciate that. I didn't have to be the first one to think it. It happens. It's real. It's human. Eh. So a guest of honor would come in and they would be anointed. 
it was actually, you can Google the things. They're like little kind of little like waxy kind of pods that sometimes they would uh, break and split open and put on somebody's hair and they'd brush it or they'd dab it on their clothes and it would become a fresh, wonderful, nice little, you know, scent uh, to mask the smell of, let's just say, humanity. So it would have been common. It would have been understood. It would have been very expected for Jesus to come and to be the guest of honor and for him to be anointed. But is that why Jesus says that he was anointed. No, he was the guest of honor. Absolutely, he's the guest of honor, but that's not why he was anointed. We're also gonna read in the scriptures that very often people would be anointed for healing or restoration. Jesus, in fact, tells a story. When he's in a conversation with a man questioning the law, he asks, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus goes into his usual to love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Wanting clarification on that, he says, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a story, a story we call the story of the Good Samaritan, familiar to many of us. Within that story, when the two religious leaders pass by the person who was beaten, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road, lo and behold, the surprise to that story is that a Samaritan, somebody who would be understood as an enemy of the people, an outsider, a foreigner, an outcast, a less than, an other, and he's the one who's the good neighbor. And what does he do, it says? It says that he took that man, left for dead on the side of the road, he put him on his donkey, and he anointed him with oil and with wine. He anointed the wounds that he had experienced for healing. And we see this practice all throughout the scriptures, of course. It would have been common practice to anoint any wound. They didn't understand the body, uh, germs, uh, infectious disease, all those things like we do, but they knew this much. You put a little wine on that, it seems to have an antiseptic quality. You put a little oil on that, and the healing seems to happen a bit better. So it was a common practice to anoint for healing. We know that Jesus is, we'll often say, the great physician, the great healer. Is that why Jesus is anointed in this story? It's not. It's not. We also know that in the scriptures that anointing was a very common practice for uh, installing a prophet, a priest, or a king. Perhaps a story that would come to mind for a lot of us would be whenever uh, David was anointed to be king over all of Israel. He is going to be the chosen one. All of his brothers are sort of paraded by the prophet. Uh, none of them are the one called, but whenever young David, the shepherd boy, comes, it says that Samuel took that horn of oil and anointed him to be the king over Israel. And we see that practice happen for the prophets. We see that practice happen for the priests. This past Christmas, we had a series that walked us through the roles that Jesus was fulfilling in his ministry of prophet and priest and king. And we've seen those roles played out in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He would be the prophet. He was the living word of God. And Jesus' ministry starts as a preaching and teaching ministry. His sharing the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. You can experience the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation with God through me. This is good news. Hallelujah and amen. Jesus was a prophet. And he was living into that ministry. Jesus was a priest. The priest was the one to bring healing and reconciliation. Jesus demonstrated that when we walk through the miracles in the gospel of John, those miracles were signs of the healing work, the priestly work in a sense of restoration throughout Jesus's 
ministry. He was fulfilling that. Kings have a court. Kings have followers. Kings have subjects. We also saw in the past several weeks, Jesus calling disciples to follow him. We've seen this ministry of Jesus now being played out from Christmas to Easter. If you don't understand it, go back and watch and listen to every message in one sitting. Binge watch everything. It'll all come together for you. He was sharing the good news. He was demonstrating the power of God through his miracles. He was calling men and women to follow him. Is that why Jesus was anointed? Because he was prophet, because he was a priest, because he was a king, because they would declare that he was a king on Palm Sunday? No, still not why he said he was anointed that day. There's something else we need to understand about the life and the ministry, the calling, the purpose of Jesus coming to be with us. One more thing before we get to that. We also have another keen insight into this, which I think is quite interesting. We see now for the first time, actually, the character of Judas revealed. Suspend your knowledge of where things go, of course, for just a moment. If you just picked up the story and you're reading through a fresh new eyes, new insights, never heard this before, this would be your, whoa, you mean one of his own followers? is going to betray him, this is where we actually get it in the gospel of John. Here, John takes this as his opportunity so that we are about to, again, understand all that's going to unfold in our holy week leading up to Easter. Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus. One of his own will stab him in the back. We have this added insight about the character of Judas, that he kept the money bags, but he helped himself on occasion to it. So this reveals for us what is going to transpire with one of the disciples, with Judas. But again, is that why John tells us why Jesus says that he was anointed? No, I've drug it on long enough. You're like, come on, preacher, get to it. We get it, we're smart people. We're following along with the story. Why is Jesus anointed? for his burial, but the whole point of this in the Gospel of John and what I want to lay on us today is the, wait, what? For burial? Jesus, you seem to be the most alive person we've ever met. You're so alive that when you get around dead people, dead people get alive. That just happened a couple verses ago. How can the most alive person, the person whose aliveness, if that's even a word, the person whose aliveness is so great, so powerful that it is actually contagious for the dead people that you encounter. How can you, the most alive person we've ever encountered in all of our lives, be anointed for burial? This is John's insight for us, pointing to this final movement that will happen in the life and the ministry, the work of Jesus Christ for us. Yes, he is the prophet bringing us the word of God. Yes, he is the healer demonstrating the works of God. Yes, he is the king calling disciples to follow him and devote their complete allegiance. But he has to do something that no other before him could ever or would ever do. The only one qualified, the only one who could carry the burden, the only one who could do it, the one who would become the Lamb of God, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the one who would go to the cross and die for our sins so that he could rise to new life for us. This is why Jesus was anointed. He was anointed for burial. And when we read that in John text, let us have open hearts and open minds to say, what, wow, huh? What is happening here? 
What is happening here is the final movement that will seal for us the promise of forgiveness and eternal life with God now and with God forever in his kingdom. Mary takes this pint of pure nard. I wanted you to understand how much this actually was. It says about a pint of pure nard, about 16 ounces. That can seem like a little whenever we're thirsty and I get pretty thirsty preaching, so I'm kind of tempted to drink this here right now. But just get a sense of now in what would have been expected in what would have been part of the routine, what would have been normal, the anointing of the guest of honor, the anointing of Jesus, how this begins to, we, un, we understand something that the people have never seen or experienced before. That Mary, who has so often, we've read before, sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words, giving him her devotion, maybe literally hanging on all of the insights and the teachings that he's poured out on her. Perhaps she was the only one listening close enough to get it. We don't know that for sure, but I do kind of like to think about it in that way that she was the one who had picked up on those insights because Jesus has actually been pointing to it for some time, that he was coming as the Lamb of God, that he would sacrifice his life so that others might live. They knew that the religious leaders, the people had put a bounty on his head, they knew that his life was in a sense in danger, but they also believed that he could be crowned king and he could take power and reign, but he had been pointing to this sacrifice that was about to happen. Mary, it seems, maybe catches on. And she takes this opportunity to take this pint of pure nard. It would have been imported from India. And we have the insight from the other gospels that it would have been held in an alabaster jar because that would have been one of the only things that would have been non-porous and that they could seal and that could be preserved and that could be kept sort of like a little investment. So you could put your money into nard. Today we put it in cryptocurrency, right? I don't know how safe that is, but to, you could have put it into nard. Could have been a family heirloom have been something they invested in as a family. However they came to it, it was theirs. It was probably the most valuable thing that they possessed. And she takes that pint of pure nard, and we don't know exactly how or what, what modes or all at once are dumped out, but just imagine how it would change the temperature, the feeling of that room as she poured out that nard, as she anointed Jesus and began to weep and to wipe his feet with her own hair, says that room was just then filled. She became filled with the scent of that nard. It would have been overwhelming. Today, if we have these uh, scent sensitivities, people would have got headaches, they've got migraines, they would have gotten out of there, I don't know, but it just overwhelmed the room. And again, we know that Judas couldn't help himself. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold and given to the poor as worth a year's wages. It sounds so good. I would have probably been the one to say it if I was in the room. But Mary, understanding what was about to unfold, understanding what was about to happen in the life of Jesus, could any act of worship be 
too extravagant for the one who was about to take the sins of the world on his shoulder? Absolutely not. If we have now the foresight of what is about to happen, we can look back on this moment as it unfolds. If you had the opportunity, would you have held anything back? I hope the answer is no. (laughs) I hope the answer is when we understand what he was about to endure, if we would have had the moment to show him how much it would mean for us, would we have withheld any act or extravagance of worship to pour out on him? Would any song be too much? Would any tears be too many? Would any perfume poured out be too costly? Absolutely not. In fact, it would have fallen far short of how worthy he was and he is and he forever will be. Amen, friends? We're just trying to get a sense of the devotion, the worship, the extravagant outpouring of our lives as a fragrant offering for him. That is ultimately what he wants. That is what Paul would point us to even in his book, to the, a letter to the church in Philippi. Oh, that our lives would become this fragrant outpouring of worship for him. Matthew and Mark give us a little insight. They say that every time, everywhere that this gospel, the gospel is preached, Jesus says her story would be told. And I don't know when or where, and I've preached on this a few times over the course of my life, but I've just tried to take that to heart. That every couple years I come back to this story and I make sure I honor Jesus' words and we tell Mary's story. And we just try to step into that place of extravagant outpouring of worship and praise and honor of the one who gave his life so that we might live. So there's a sense then that every time we tell the gospel, every time we tell the story of the Christ, we're telling the story of the anointed one. Because if you didn't catch it yet, let me make it abundantly clear. What does Christ actually mean? It means the anointed one, right? It means the anointed one. That we call Jesus Christ, that we call him the Christ, we are constantly calling and referring to him as the anointed one. And every time we call him Jesus the Christ, yes, we say you are the Christ because you are the honored guest of our lives. Yes, you are the Christ because you are the healer. Yes, you are the Christ because you are the prophet, you are the priest and the king. But, oh, you are the Christ because you were anointed for burial because you were anointed for the death that I deserved. You were anointed to take the burden that I couldn't bear. You were anointed to die so that I might live. Hallelujah, amen. Let's get Jonathan up here because we gotta drive this one home. Because I think there's another way that we tell her story. Make this connection with me, would you, in your minds and in your hearts and in your worship for God. What do we call ourselves so often? Christians, little Christs. You ever thought that every time you call yourself a little Christ, you're calling yourself a little anointed one? One anointed like Jesus. And every time we call ourselves an anointed one, perhaps that will evoke a memory for us, whether in a child and the faith we affirm, or maybe as an adult when we went through those waters ourselves, it reminds us of our christening, of our anointing, of our going through those waters of baptism. And we said, we want to be washed clean of the sin 
that falls on us, the sins that we commit, the sins that may be committed against us, those things that bring us guilt, those things that might even weigh on us as shame, those things that we feel we never want to bring into the dark, but those places where Jesus wants to come in and shine the light of his love and his life in us. When we go through those waters, we actually say that we might die to our old selves so that we might rise to new life. So isn't it that every time we call ourselves a Christian in a little way, if we might pause for just a moment, we might remember. We might just you know, even if we look weird, just look off <laughs> to the distance so that our coworkers and family and friends say, what, what are they, what's going on with them? But maybe we're just having a moment where we remember, yes, Lord, I am an anointed one. I wash myself with the forgiveness of sins because of your promise to me. I died in my old life and I rise to new the Christ. Christ, the guest of honor, Christ, the great healer, Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, but yes, Christ, the one who is anointed for burial so that I might rise to new life. Amen, friends? Let's worship God and let us just take a few moments now to let that anoint us, to that that wash over us, to let that fragrant fragrance overwhelm and evoke the memories of all that Jesus has done for us so that we might have life with him now and forever. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful story of your anointing. May it evoke for us an outpouring of worship and praise for the one who gave his life so that we might live. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. <laughs>